Yes, I promise I'm ready now. There is not a liturgy for a committee meeting. <laughs> yes, there is. It's called Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> You've read or heard or preached the scripture this week. Now what? Join myself, Pastor Carissa, and my colleague, Pastor Allen, as we explore the spaces between Sundays in our podcast, Soft Idolatry. Welcome to episode four of series one of Soft Idolatry. We are going through the Ten Commandments right now, and today we're going to be talking about the commandment to keep the Sabbath and make it holy. Alan, what is your plan this week for uh, texts and sermon title to go along with this passage? My uh, other my other text is Luke six one through five, and my sermon title is "Let My People Go." Nice, nice. I am also using Luke six one through five, and I'm also tossing in Genesis two one through three, where God takes a break. And my sermon title is Give Me a Break. Ah, okay. There we go. How about I read today's scripture, and then I'm going to toss it over to you because I know you have a a story that you want to share. Sounds good. Today we will be reading Deuteronomy 5, 6, and then skipping over to verse 12 through 14. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. When I was doing my field ed internship, on uh, at least one or two occasions, I annoyed the out of Pastor Dave. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine you annoying anyone, Alan. No, not me. Not me. So, and, and it relates to this commandment. I, in fact, I would say I never truly understood fourth commandment until my time in field education. For a little bit of context, at the time I was a member of a church in the east end of Pittsburgh that I would describe as a destination church. Probably half of the members lived more than five or 10 miles away from the church itself. I I just clocked out the mileage from my old apartment and it was 11 miles. So a lot of us were commuting and a lot of us would be there on Sundays. And so we would have a lot of committee meetings after worship on Sunday. That was just the time when everybody was there. And even if there wasn't a committee meeting, you would often use the uh, fellowship time after worship to get one of the other members that you needed to talk about some sort of church business, and you would talk about that business. It's just what you did. So Pastor Dave, my coordinating pastor, is someone who took this commandment 
to keep the Sabbath holy very, very seriously. As I said, I hadn't really thought about it all that much beyond, okay, go to church on Sunday. But Dave refused to do any church work on Sunday unless it was absolutely necessary. Sunday was for worship and fellowship. He might do pastoral visitations, but that fell more under fellowship and pastoral care than the business of the church. Now, I annoyed the shit out of him because I would always corner him after worship and ask about our schedule for the upcoming week, what we would be doing, um, you know, between Tuesday and Friday. Of course, Dave wanted none of this, and the first couple times he didn't say anything, but finally he, he just sat me down and said, stop, this is Sunday, that's church business, we don't talk about this on Sunday. And true, true to his word, not only were there never committee meetings at that congregation on Sundays, but Dave would also take Monday off as his personal Sabbath his personal day when he did not do any work related to the church. And I had never fully appreciated what it meant to live into that commandment until I did my field education. Now I also strive for those things. I have not yet been able to get any of the congregations I serve to stop having meetings on Sundays yet. Now that I'm installed, I'm going to work on that. But uh, myself, I take Fridays off. That is my dedicated Sabbath day that I will not do any church work. And I find that even on those rare Fridays when I say to myself, oh, I've got a lot on the plate on Saturday. I want to get ahead. I'll do a little bit of work on my sermon. Something comes up and I get none of that church work done on Fridays. I am curious. I'm curious how long it took for you to catch on and for Pastor Dave to finally say to you, dude, stop. <laughs> Longer than he wanted it to, certainly. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I, I would guess probably about three or four times of me asking that. Maybe only two or three, but it was it was definitely more than one. It certainly can be logistically easy to do meetings and things on Sunday, but I do appreciate the way that uh, he and, and other pastors who have this particular personal policy, um, I really appreciate that acknowledgement that it's important for church members to take this Sabbath as well, and that church work is still work. Um, that said, I probably crossed the line on that one a little bit more. I don't generally schedule meetings on Sundays, but I certainly talk a lot of shop on Sunday mornings. Right, right. You do that when you've got people around. And I think it's it's an ethic that you have to cultivate. You know, we're talking about a guy who has been serving his congregation for 20, 25 years. And so whether or not that was the way he did church in year one, I couldn't say. But by the time I served there, he had been in that pastorate close to 20 years. 
And by that time, his repetition of the practice created a situation in which other people conformed to that ethic. Right, right. And for us as as pastors, it's also, it can change from church to church. I have found this out as well. My Sabbath pattern has changed. It used to be that I took Mondays off. And in my current context, that just does not work for me. There is too much going on on Mondays. Um, And so I also take off Fridays. Friday and Saturday tend to be my weekend. Occasionally, there are church things on Saturdays, and and I bend on those and, and take a different day off during the week. But the nice thing about taking Fridays off for me is that at least during the school year, my husband's at work and my kids are at school. And so I truly have a day where I do not have to care for anybody but myself and my cats if they're feeling bossy. But it's really nice to have that as well. And then the day of family Sabbath together for us. Right. And and I think pretty much all pastors will make an exception for a funeral. You know, we don't really get to schedule those. Oh, for um, sure. There's always exceptions. But by and large, Fridays, no, no church work. Yeah. And I think that that's where Luke 6 comes into play in this, where Jesus is reminding folks that, yes, the Sabbath is important, uh, nurturing relationship with God and others and looking at the way that God calls us to live our lives is very important. But you can't be so strict as to ignore something as urgent as hunger. Right. The, there, there is always in the Hebrew scriptures a higher duty to preserve life and health and dignity. And that sits above things like the rule to observe the Sabbath by not working. And I like this commandment as a bridge between the commandments about loving God and the commandments about loving neighbor, because in a lot of ways, Sabbath is also about loving self, not like, oh, I'm awesome. Look at me. But in a self-care kind of way, a taking care of yourself, because you can't take care of others. You can't nurture healthy relationships with any other person or with God if you are unhealthy within and you are not nurturing yourself. And so this is an interesting uh, last loving God commandment moving into the loving neighbor commandments. Right. And and there, this also points out, points out isn't maybe the right word, this also emphasizes the connectedness of the commandments. In our previous episode on the third commandment against using the Lord's name falsely or in vanity, we forgot to talk about exclusivity. The third commandment keeps us in an exclusive relationship with God. We may not swear oaths or allegiance to God only when it suits us, and then swear an oath to some other god when that god or goddess seems more appropriate to the task. We are called to be in an exclusive relationship with God, so we mustn't misuse God's name. If we claim to be children of God 
and party to the covenants with God, then we can't make any bargains on the side with any other gods. This is fundamentally different from all other religions in the ancient Near East or the Mediterranean. Other gods were associated with natural phenomena, storm gods, fertility goddesses, sea gods, etc. They were portrayed as vain and temperamental. Sometimes they were like overgrown children. Their interactions with humanity were transactional, not relational. They used humans for their own desires, and humans prayed or made offerings to whichever god or goddess whose help they sought. A person could make an offering to Zeus or Baal, and then to Ishtar or Aphrodite. It didn't matter if a person prayed to more than one god, the other gods demanded offerings, not fidelity and relationship. But with God, our God, there are no split relationships, no divided loyalties, and that's where the third and fourth commandments meet. So I think what I hear you saying then, Alan, is that the commandment to keep the Sabbath is another way of taking a break from things that might have become other gods or idols in our lives, things like busyness or overworking. Exactly. God needs us to be whole people in order to be in relationship with God. We can't have one without the other. So, so good self-care, making sure that we're a whole person is key in our relationship with God. Right. If we aren't doing that, then we get out of balance and we get knocked out of that place of faithful response. Walter Brueggemann, the excellent scholar, says, Sabbath keeping is a way of making a statement of peculiar identity amid a larger public identity of maintaining and enacting a counter-identity that refuses mainstream identity, which itself entails anti-human practice and the worship of anti-human gods. So I'm going to unpack that a bit. That would be great, because there's a whole lot going on in that. <laughs> there is a whole lot going on in that. And, and I love Brueggemann, but that's the difference between academic theology and preaching and teaching to a congregation of regular folks. It certainly is. And I do think that um, regular folks, the, you know, the people that are sitting in our pews, can access theology of brilliant minds like Walter Brueggemann, but sometimes... They're, we need to help a little bit. I mean, we they, couldn't they just... They need a Sherpa on this journey. They need a Sherpa on the journey. I like that. Yeah, because we have journeyed. We were taught how to do this journey. And uh, it's our job then in turn to help others. So that they, what, don't stop believing? <laughs> well, there's... Sorry. A... <laughs> I couldn't resist that. It's not going to be. I'm going to have that stuck in my head all damn day. Thanks. Yes. All right. So, so that, why so don't you they unpack? Don't stop believing. Yeah. Why yes. don't I unpack? Brugamon yeah. Please a unpack bit? some Brugamon for us. Okay. So, the Israelites' identity is as God's chosen people, and as Christians, we claim that heritage too. 
Sabbath keeping set the Israelites apart from all of the other religions. That made them different. They were the only ones who worshipped one single God. And that God commanded them to take a day off. There was one day that you couldn't ask them to work. But Pharaoh wanted more and more bricks. So the Israelites stood apart from every other laborer and merchant and artisan and whatever your other social classes were in ancient Egypt. The Israelites all stood apart because they got a day off. Their public identity was different from everyone else's. And that identity refused to conform to the societies, the Egyptian societal expectation that you will work every day of the week for Pharaoh. And the Egyptian gods, rather than loving and nurturing the Egyptian people, were all part of that system that says, Pharaoh is on top. You will do everything in allegiance to Pharaoh and in loyalty to Pharaoh. So in that sense, they are anti-human. They are letting the humans continue to be a commodity, a source of labor, rather than a beloved child of God. Fear and anxiety take us away from wholeness. And in those dark places, we're tempted to seek easy ways out. We don't always trust God. I... I have a pithy phrase that I have used in sermons, and would you like Just me to one? share that with you? You Just only have one. one pithy phrase? I, I have many pithy phrases, but I have one that is particularly <laughs> applicable in this circumstance. Well, then let's apply that pithy phrase. Fear inhibits faith. I'm sorry. Let me, let me, <laughs> I got my own pithy phrase wrong. Fear interrupts faith. I like that. That is so true. And we see a lot of that in day-to-day life. And I do want to take a moment just to note that when we talk about fear and anxiety in this context, uh, we do not mean clinical anxiety. A lot of people are happy to write off mental health issues as, oh, pray it away, As someone who does suffer from generalized anxiety disorder, I'm always very sensitive to make sure and point out that we are not advocating that taking a Sabbath will cure your generalized anxiety disorder or your depression or a phobia or anything like that. We're talking about something different than that in this particular case. Right. We are talking about relationship, which is an antidote to some of the toxic parts of our culture. But if there is an actual medical condition that needs to be coupled with, you know, modern medicine. (laughs) And, and, And in such cases, the two need to go together. Modern medical treatment and relationship with neighbor and with God. Yeah, for sure. Um, Being 
in balanced relationship with God and others and ourselves, managing good self-care and boundaries, those are all important parts of our whole health, along with caring for any medical conditions. This is this is about shalom, and that word is um, that word means peace, but not necessarily in the way that we tend to think of peace. It's a little deeper. It really means wholeness. So it's not just the absence of violence or strife or war, but it is a completion, a wholeness. And so that's wholeness of self, wholeness of relationship, wholeness in worship. And that's what we're, we're talking about here. And so uh, there are a lot of pieces to this puzzle. But the Israelites did not get to appreciate much shalom while they were in Egypt. While they were there, their existence was all about fear and anxiety. Pharaoh always demanded more, more bricks. In fact, Pharaoh himself was pretty anxious, and he took his anxieties out upon the Israelites. Even before the Exodus, God set the Israelites free from some of this anxiety. And then God sets them free completely. God leads them through Moses out from Pharaoh. And that seems great at first. But then the Israelites complain a lot. And then Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And while the Israelites are waiting for him to return, they get nervous. Really, really nervous. Overwhelmed by anxiety, they make an idol and worship it. So just a brief aside here. Uh, in Greek mythology, the gods are really caricatures of humans. They exhibit all the worst traits of humanity. By contrast, in a lot of the stories of the Exodus, the Israelites seem to be caricatures of all the worst traits of humanity, all the pettiness and insecurity of the Greek gods is on display among the Israelites. God is sometimes angry and hard to understand, but the people then are like people now. Right. They came from a very different time and culture, and they were up against different adversaries, so to speak, that than we are up against now, but we're still human at the core of it. And now that we have this historical background, this theological background, what is the takeaway then for our listeners? That's simple. God still needs us to be whole people in order to be in relationship with God. We can't have one without the other. I mean, look at some of the ways that we're not whole. Many of us work too much. We work too many hours a week. Now, I'm talking about professional people with salaries and jobs that are predictable in their hours. Um, staying with that theme, many of us work too long, that is, Many people continue to work past retirement age 
And again, I'm talking about people who have saved enough to retire, but still continue to work at 70 or even 75. Right. Because in the case of some people who are working two or three jobs, working 60, 80 or more hours a week, or people who are working well into their 70s and 80s, for them, it's not an issue of not wanting to Sabbath. It's an issue of not being able to Sabbath. And that becomes a justice issue. That gets back to care of neighbors. When we see people who are unable to take a Sabbath because they have to work two and three minimum wage jobs just to make ends meet, then um, then we need to care about providing Sabbath for the people around us and stand up for um, for the right for people to live Sabbath-taking yeah. that, lives. That, that's, I think, something that we all need to work with our congregations on um, in terms of a systemic response to that. I think... An individual response, in this case, a pastoral response, is not to say to that person who is working so many hours, boy, you really need to take a Sabbath. I, I mean, how insulting is that to someone who is struggling to make ends meet that, you know, you can only be in church occasionally and your pastor says, you, you need to take more time off so you can come to church. Yeah, that's that that's maybe time to seek a more understanding pastoral relationship. Um, and I think this is a good example, too, of the depth and the layers that we find in the commandments. And so they're not only a list of individual behaviors, but they're also things to be looking out for to see, is justice being done in the world? If there are people that are enslaved, which there are today, um, or people who are essentially working lives of slavery, barely making ends meet, but working, you know, f several jobs or whatever, then then it becomes a justice issue as well. The commandments are, are being broken because we're not allowing other people to live lives that that look like God's intents. No, they, they these are people who are not living shalom. And it, it's it's up to us first and foremost, to tune the ears of our congregation to the cries of the people who cannot participate in shalom, to be mindful and aware of those people out there. There aren't quick and easy answers other than to say, meet people, talk to people, understand what's going on in their lives. Uh, as a pastor, if I am meeting that member of my congregation who is working 60 hours a week or more, working two or three jobs to make ends meet, uh, the only thing I'm going to say is, I love you. God loves you. Um, if you can find some time, let me buy you lunch. Right. So one thing that I hear a lot when people are talking about the sacredness of Sundays or the sanctity or holiness of Sundays is, well, the young families, the unicorns, the young families don't come to church because their kids have to play sports on Sunday. And I actually am really, really sick and tired of hearing this same old argument beaten that, to death. That's funny. So Some people tell me they can't come to church because of the boogeyman. 
I think for a lot of a lot of our congregations, youth sports have become the boogeyman. They are that excuse for internal decline that gives an explanation for the facts in front of them, and it tells our congregations, oh, this is someone else's fault. We don't need to change to meet the needs of the society around us. Right. The world needs to change in order to conform to church from the 1950s. Church from the 1950s does not want to conform to meet the needs of the world today. No, or or even the 1960s or 70s or early 80s. Right. You know, I think we're we're both old enough to remember mainline Protestant church services on Sunday mornings that were full, that had two, three hundred people in worship. And I think that uh, that that is such a powerful memory for many of our congregations that they have trouble imagining anything different from that and seeing anything different from that as successful. Not that God is calling us to be successful. God is calling us to be faithful. And so I kind of wonder, why aren't we as the church out there at the ball field on Sunday mornings? Are our buildings such great idols that we can't see that people are somewhere else on Sunday mornings? Yes. Shouldn't we be where the people are? Yes. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with you on, on both of those things. We've talked about this already in this podcast in the first four episodes that our buildings really have us hogtied. Yeah, they, in terms of our use of resources, but also in the terms, in terms of what we envision the church to be, and we get trapped within our own walls. And I think that uh, we we have more walls than we realize. Um, we have denominational walls. We have walls of separation between church folk and not church folk, and none of those are helpful. Uh, It didn't matter that we had such powerful denominational walls when we had 300 people in worship on a Sunday morning. But now that none of us have the resources, so, so as I was saying, I think we should be at the ball fields. The problem, of course, is how do we do it? You know, most of us, many of us serve churches that are smaller, that might only have 100 or 150 members, that might only have 60 or 70 people in worship on a good Sunday. Where do we find the resources to send staff to these ball fields? And some of us have half that many people. Exactly. And some of us have more than one congregation that we serve. Um, So this becomes a huge challenge. How do we meet that? And I think part of the answer is that we have to be willing to cross some of those local boundaries and partner with other congregations to create some space, not for full Sunday morning worship, but for prayer and conversation. 
I mean, what would it be like if we sent a half a dozen people to go to the ball field with coffee and pastries and just meet parents and say hello? Not with the hopes of recruiting people, but because God calls us to be in relationship. I think I think we could do that, and we could do that more effectively if we collaborated with other congregations near us. I am all for congregational collaboration. That is one of my big soapboxes. I think that is so vitally important to the future of the church, that congregations be working together both within denominational bounds and across denominational bounds, and even working with other nonprofits in the community that aren't necessarily associated or affiliated with a church. And and linking this back around to Sabbath and practicing Sabbath, what we're talking about here is the importance of Sabbath, but also the importance of not uh, not trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, not trying to force an old view or a rigid definition of Sabbath on a world that cannot practice Sabbath in that way. So what does that look like in practice? I think a great place to start is by developing a personal rule of life. And the thing I think is really helpful about this is it allows us the freedom to look at ourself and our own life and figure out what our rhythm with God is. I have a personal rule of life. While we don't have it formally written out, my family does have and talk about a family rule of life. What are the the ways that we as a family connect with God and with each other? You can establish congregational rules of life. And in fact, even if it's not written down and established formally, congregations do have a rule of life. We all have one, whether we know it or not. And for most, for most traditional mainline denominations and even uh, non-mainline churches, a big part of that rule of life is Sunday morning worship. What, what does that look like outside of Sunday mornings? Well, that varies from church to church, and I think it should vary from church to church. It should not look the same in every single congregation. And in fact, it looks different even in the two congregations that I serve that are very closely partnered with one another. Each congregation has a different looking rule of life. I have a link that I'm going to share in the show notes to some questions to be asking yourself if you are developing a rule of life. So really all a rule of life is, is a list of the rhythms of your spiritual life. What are the things you do to connect with God? So think about, think about what disciplines and specific practices you are attracted to and like to do and why is that? So when you say a rule of life, is it more the sense of do this, don't do that? Or is it in the sense of taking the measure of your life? Yes. Rule as in measuring, not rule as in law. Correct. I, I think that's helpful because I think we are so conditioned by our older understanding of the Ten Commandments as a checklist of rules, which we have both rejected, uh, that when we hear a rule, we just think 
of do this, don't do that, when actually we are talking about taking stock of our lives and most, more specifically taking stock of our lives of faith and our relationship with God. Right. So this week, what we're encouraging you to do, uh, if you get a chance to glance at the show notes, take a look at the, the link that I'm going to share, and just spend some time writing down what are the rhythms of your life in regards to God? What are the things that make you feel close to God? So for most of us, Sunday morning will be on there. For some of us, maybe there's a midweek Bible study that we do. Um, there can be weekly, daily, monthly, just like when we looked at examine, there are different time periods that you can use in this rule of life too. So part of my rule of life is once a month, I meet with my spiritual director. Part of my rule of life is um, going to the gym in the morning, five days a week. And I know that sounds silly as a spiritual practice, but for a person who spends much of their day in meetings or sitting down or writing, just that physical movement actually helps me to connect to God. So it doesn't have to be traditionally spiritual practices that wind up in that either. No, but it, it is clearly something which takes you away from a place of anxiety. It is something that enables your fuller participation in the in the meetings because you're not restless and and you know bouncing about in your seat or you speak as one worried. who's been in meetings with me before. <laughs> yes, indeed, I speak as one who's been in meetings first and foremost. <laughs> But yes, so so it's it's of a piece with all of the other things. You can't separate out the balance of a healthy body and and a healthy physical life along with a healthy spiritual life. If you have any questions that you want to ask about developing a rule of life, maybe need a little bit of guidance on that or some more resources, please feel free to email us. Our email is info at softidolatry.com. We welcome your comments and your questions, and we're happy to respond to those. Ellen, if you could wrap us up with prayer, that would be great. I would love to. Our prayer today comes from Walter Brueggemann's book, Sabbath as Resistance, saying no to the culture of now. Let us pray. God of the ages, our present age is shaped by our incessant drive to have more stuff. The gods of commerce and power seduce us into believing we are defined by the quantity of our possessions not by the quality of our relationships. Quiet our endless, restless search for stuff. Bring us into the quiet center wherein your Spirit's call is clear. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another episode, friends. If you'd like to send us some questions or comments, you can email us. Our email is info at softidolatry.com. And you can always check out our website at softidolatry.com. Even in God's law, human life and dignity 
supersede other laws. I am a procrastinator, so that often means that I am writing my sermon on Saturday morning or finishing my sermon on Saturday morning. You're ahead of me because I'm usually finishing mine on Sunday morning. I get to the church rip-roaring early on Sunday morning to finish <laughs> up because it's so quiet, right? So I've had those those two days of Sabbath to think about. I've usually had it outlined. I've studied it. I've outlined before then by Thursday.